Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll take up at verse 15, where we left off this morning. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. And open our hearts that we might understand the things that are freely given to us of Thee, and that they might cause our hearts to rejoice, our spirits to be humbled, and our feet to be led in the way of righteousness all the days of our lives. The seeing eye and the hearing ear, the Lord hath made even both of them. Lord, help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul knew how to write long sentences. In verses 3 through 14, we had two sentences. And this should be a short sermon because we've only got one sentence left in the chapter. When the Apostle Paul writes a sentence and he introduces one thought, and then that thought leads him to another thought, he just keeps on going. He loves semicolons and colons and commas. Because he continued on in his thought. And while there's various truths brought together in the one sentence, it is yet very closely connected. Let's start right there at verse 15 and trust the Lord to teach us from these words. He has in the first 14 verses clearly laid out how they were saved. He brought it all the way down to their possession of the Holy Spirit after they believed. Now the possession of the Holy Spirit after you believe is different than the Holy Spirit that regenerates you. And I explained that to you last Lord's Day. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit regenerates you and gives you a new man inside that's created in righteousness and true holiness. We're going to learn about him in chapter 4 of this epistle. After you believe the gospel and are baptized and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit expands His ministry and role in your life By giving you strength and comfort for the Christian life. It's the seal of your sonship. It's the earnest of your inheritance. And it gives you the ability to live a God-pleasing life. It brings you the joy and happiness and the comfort and presence of God Himself by His Spirit. They already had all that. And so with that in mind, from election to having the Holy Spirit in their possession, we then come to these words. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Not only did I preach the gospel to you, not only are you saved, I have further prayer requests for you. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul's been gone a while. He writes, at the end of this epistle, and he says that he has sent a brother, Tychicus, in order to find out more about those Ephesians, and in turn he could tell them more about himself. He was at this church for a good while, if you remember from Acts 19. He was probably longer at Ephesus than any other church. He had spent a good time there. He knew these people well. And if you remember from the reading of Acts 19 earlier this morning, that was a pagan city. A city given over to witchcraft, the worship of the great goddess Diana, and the image of the the image that fell from Jupiter. They had exorcists in the city, and many of those people had been converted, 
and formed into a church. And now Paul is writing to them and he's telling them, though God has done all these things that the first 14 verses describe, there's more for you. There's more for you. I hear of your faith. I hear that you are not being moved by the persecution at Ephesus. I hear that you're holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we turn to Revelation chapter 2 and read about this church, the Bible tells us they were diligent, full of labor, had tried false apostles and found them to be liars, that they were a good church and had done many good things. They had held the faith. They had lost some of their first love. But Paul doesn't see that at this point. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. They were a loving church. A church that believed the gospel, held the gospel, preached the truth, defended the truth, and loved one another. Paul was thankful for that. So he says, after I've heard all that, I don't cease to give thanks to God for you. Now, when Paul says he doesn't cease to give thanks, that doesn't mean that every second of every minute of every day, he's thanking God for the Ephesian saints. It's just that he never has any gaps in his thankfulness for them. Sometimes when you read Paul and it says, pray without ceasing, that does not mean you have to pray 24-7. It means that you're praying every, every 24-hour period and you don't quit and give up. You're a praying man and you don't stop believing in prayer. It doesn't mean that you're praying all the time. You can't well do that. But it, you don't quit. That's why the Bible says in other places that we're not supposed to faint and we're to continue instant in prayer. And so here he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. That doesn't mean he was thanking God all the time audibly, either inside or outside, but that he didn't stop. Day after day, he thanked the Lord for the testimony of the Ephesian saints that for their faith and their love to one another. That is commendable by the greatest apostle of the New Testament. When we have faith toward God, I believe that God is, and I believe that God is a rewarder, of them that diligently seek Him. That's what faith is. I believe that God is. He exists. And I believe that God rewards those who seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that's what faith is. If you have faith like that, it is commended by an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ of the stature of Paul. And if you have love to one another, it's proof of your sonship as well, and it's commended by this great apostle. Because to love one another when by nature we are selfish and hateful, is again proof that God has done a work in us. Those are two simple things, aren't they? I believe I believe God. I believe God is, and I love my brothers. Now, how do you love your brothers? Are you merciful toward them? Are you forgiving toward them? Are you easily provoked? Do you believe all things? Hope all things? Do you care about them? Do you serve them? Do you forgive them? Do you overlook their offenses? Yeah, now we find out whether we love one another or not. But if we do those things, it's worthy of the Apostle commending us. Those are not hard. Those are things we can do. Those are things that we can do as a church that if the Apostle Paul knew us, he could say, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Remembering your faith and your love. I pray that that will be true of us. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. I want to comment on these these words here, making mention of you in my prayers. When you go through all of Paul's epistles, and he says, I don't cease to pray for this church, I don't cease to pray for that church, I don't cease to pray for this minister, and you read all of those, you say Paul was a full-time praying man. 
But he gives us a clue about how he prayed right here when he says, making mention of you in my prayers. Do you know how fast you can pray for a number of... And it's not to do it fast. It's just not to do it foolishly. Making mention of a list of people. You can pray through the membership of this church in just a couple of minutes by making mention of each person. And when you say each person's name, they can flash before your eyes and you can say something that is important about that person and you can pray for the whole church. You can pray for an enormous list of prayer requests by making mention of them. And that's what Paul tells us here. It is a helpful hint on effective praying. You know, sometimes the point I'm trying to make is when you read the New Testament, you think that Paul must be praying for hours at a crack. Well, if he was praying for hours at a crack, when was he making tents, which he said he labored night and day in things other than praying? And he preached the word because he knew how to make mention of things. Do you know what God wants to hear from us? That we love someone enough to pray for them by making mention of them. And that we trust him enough that we don't have to elaborate and give him all the details. Do you know what? He already knows all the details before we pray at all. You know, sometimes we get into prayer and we think that we're going to inform the Lord about every aspect of the situation. The next time we go to pray for the person, we do the same thing all over again as if he forgot from the previous day. We don't, you don't have to pray like that to please God. Make mention of the things. God, you know what? He just wants to know that we are dependent on Him for any good thing that's going to happen to those things. Do you think Paul's prayers were answered? I think making mention is a good way of praying, and it's inspired by the Holy Ghost. So he made a mention of Timothy. Every time he prayed, he would thank God for Timothy. He wouldn't have to elaborate (coughs) and tell the Lord where Timothy was at this particular time and what particular problems he was having in what particular church and that his aunt had sickness he could just say Timothy and the Lord would take care of the rest. Is that comforting to you? Yes. What a merciful God. Amen. And if you'll read every word of the Bible, you'll find mercy in it. That's right. Making mention in my prayers. Now, let's get to the real good stuff. What did Paul pray for a church that was elect, chosen, predestinated, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, that had an eternal inheritance, had believed the gospel, had trusted in Christ, had a seal of their sonship, and had the earnest of the Spirit. <laughs> to me, there ain't nothing else to pray for. I speak as a fool. Right. What in the world is Paul going to pray for a church that he just lists as having all those things true of them? That, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, do you think he's referring back to the being that we read about in verses 3 through 14? I do think so. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. There is another aspect to the work of the Holy Spirit that comes beyond Him being the earnest of our inheritance. That comes beyond Him being the seal of our sonship. That's past regeneration. That's past conversion. These people were converted because it said they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and they believed it, had been baptized, and were in a church that preached it. But there was still something they needed. There is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that we all need to fully appreciate the things that we covered in the first sermon. Without the grace of God, the things that we covered in the first sermon can be historical facts to us, concepts of God and what He does toward His elect, and they don't change our lives. 
And that is the most terrible thing we could ever have as a church. We cannot have that. We cannot settle for that. We must pray for more, and we must work for more. It's not enough to know verses 3 through 14. What we want is verses 3 through 14 so affecting our souls, it changes our lives. Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth me. It changed his life. He gave up everything to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ wide open for the rest of his life. And that's what we want to do. And that's what I just prayed for our young people. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for you and especially our young people. It scares me. Our young people have sat in here all their lives and heard these things over and over. These little children that sit there and look at me, they've heard it all their lives. They think that everybody believes that. They don't think that it's that special. The Holy Spirit can make it special. And that's what he was praying for these saints. You know, we've got to admit that verses 3 through 14 are probably the most glorious statement about election, predestination, and salvation that there is in the whole New Testament, compacted in two sentences. But it's not enough just to have it written there. Paul wanted it a living part of them to where it changed their lives. So here's what he says. He prays in verse 17 that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that this great God who elected before the world began would do something else now, in time, in our lives, that He would give unto you the Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. You can only know God in a life-changing way when God the Holy Spirit convicts you of that. You say, it's got a little s. I don't like Spirit when it has a little s because then it must not be the Holy Spirit. Go home and punch into your online Bible program, Spirit, and see if there's any consistency in the way that the King James is written. There is not at all. This, The Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, what Spirit do you think that is? That's the Holy Spirit and the only Spirit that gives the knowledge and revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to heaven. He sent the Spirit down to bear witness that He's in heaven and everything about Him that the Bible says is true. It's the Holy Spirit. If you were to go do a check, and listen, I've got them here in my outline. I'm not going to bore you by taking you from Genesis to Revelation and showing you the Holy Spirit used with a small s. At the time the King James Version was written, there were not established rules for capitalizing deity. Do you know how many verses there are in the Bible that refer to Jesus as the Son with a small s? And then we've got Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25 where Nebuchadnezzar sees an angel in the fiery furnace and he's called the Son of God with a capital S. You start, you start teaching doctrine by capitals and little letters, you're going to get into deep trouble. You're going to have Mary about 600 years old to get Jesus into the Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. You know what I mean. It makes it a little more interesting when it's a small s. Then you've got to look at the context and say, what spirit is that? The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ that can only be one. It's the Holy Spirit. That's what we know the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. Wisdom. The power of right judgment and knowing true things. The wisdom of the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation, having additional things revealed to you, is by a further blessing of the Holy Spirit of God. Remember, Jesus commissioned his apostles to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. How much teaching did there need to be done 
before the baptism could take place. Think Philippian jailer. Very little. Teaching all nations. Think Ethiopian eunuch. Very little. Teaching all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Then what? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Everything else comes after baptism. So you can, ha- you can have a church full of baptized people, but they don't know very much about the things of God that are in the Bible. So you need the Holy Spirit to assist the preaching of God's Word and to open things up more to them so that they will see and know those things. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you prayed this prayer for yourself and your children? Do you fear? You ought to have this holy fear. Do you fear that we would have a head knowledge of the truth of the gospel and it would not be in our hearts to where it would change our lives? That to me is so terrible to have the truth that close and not be living it out in a way that pleases God. He is not impressed with our head knowledge of anything. Do you know what he says about the devils? They, they believe and tremble. But they don't run to him and say they love him. I want everything that God and Jesus Christ has done for us to make us run to the Lord Jesus Christ and love him. To make us want to open this. To make you want to take five minutes per verse. I don't read that slow. Learn. Learn how to read that slow. You know, people have come to me and said, how much should I read every day? I'll say, if you'll meditate in the, on one verse the whole time that you read, one verse is good enough. Just get into one verse where you'll meditate on it and actually love the God that wrote it and be thinking about the things that are said there. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That is of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit past baptism, past church membership, past having the Holy Spirit as an earnest of of the inheritance in your life, past bearing the fruit of the Spirit. This is coming to a fuller, greater, deeper, more moving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are the specifics. There are three. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. When a man's eyes are enlightened, they shine, they burst open. They burst with light. The Bible tells us that when Jonathan was famished after fighting a battle all day and he took some honey from a honeycomb and put it in his mouth, his eyes were lightened. His eyes lit up. His face lit up. The eyes of your understanding. We're not talking about these eyes. We're talking about the eyes of your understanding where you're able to look into God's Word and see the Lord Jesus Christ. See election. See adoption. See predestination. See heaven. Based on what the Bible says. The eyes of your understanding that are able to look past this world, past the trees, past the clouds, into heaven. They can view adoption. Your understanding of adoption, you have eyes that are the eyes of faith that see the things God has revealed to us about Himself. And the Apostle says He wants the eyes of our understanding, their understanding in Ephesus and and ours in Greenville, to be enlightened that ye may know. This is something that we can know. And it's not a head knowledge, it's a life-changing knowledge. They already knew it. That's why they were members of the church at Ephesus. They already knew some of these things, but these were to change their lives. You know, he's going to tell us a little bit more about this prayer request in chapter 3. Have we ever prayed as a church, Ephesians three fourteen through 20, where it says, with the power of the Holy Spirit, 
to show us the full dimensions of Christ's love, the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of Christ, until we would comprehend it well enough to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that is a that is an incredible goal. And the apostle believed it was possible because he prayed for it for them. That's chapter 3. Twice in this book we're going to run into this kind of praying. And here it is in chapter 1. That the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That is, they would have a clear view of these things because there would be lots of light shed on them that we might know what is the hope of His calling. The hope of His calling. God has called us to something. And this word call means to appoint us to something. A man's calling is what he's been appointed to. Jesus was called to be a high priest. Jesus was appointed to be a high priest. Jesus was ordained to be a high priest. The hope of our calling is what God has ordained and appointed us to. And what is that? It's to be the sons of God. Beloved, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. What manner of love that God would make us the sons of God. And it goes on to say, if a man hath this hope in him, he purifieth himself. He will live a pure and a holy life if he ever got a hold of what manner of love that God would make you his child. What if Mr. Toys R Us made you his child, Austin? Would that get you excited? Please say no. Thank you. You've got a great father. You've got two. Austin's going to be baptized real soon. He's been wanting to be baptized for a long time. He's just got a mean pastor. If we ever got a hold of the manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, we would live pure lives. Sin wouldn't be a temptation because you're a son of God and you're going to please your Father every step of the way, every phone conversation, every time you hit the Control for the television. If you truly got a vision of that, that's what you're called to be. You are called to be a son of God. But you know what? This doesn't happen unless the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Him, gives us enlightenment in our eyes of understanding. Now do you have something good to pray for when you go home? You know, instead of praying for, Lord, I need to make enough money. Lord, the car is about to go out. I mean, those things, I know sometimes I ridicule them, but you know why I ridicule them. In comparison to this prayer request, they deserve to be ridiculed. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes of understanding until you are filled with all the fullness of God. No, I can't tell you much more about it than that. But God can come and dwell in you with a fullness you haven't experienced yet. If you think you've tapped all the resources of God walking with you, guess again and try again and pray again. He can do so much more than you experience and know right now. The hope of His calling. He has called us to be the sons of God, and He's called us to eternal glory. If we're going to have eternal glory, the Apostle Paul would reason in 2 Corinthians 4.17, what is this little short-term temporal lightweight? You know, the trials and afflictions that you endure right now, they're light and they're short. Even if you endure something your whole life, how long does it last? 40 years? 50 years? What about the eternal weight of glory? What kind of weight? The eternal weight 
Forget the little light things of this life. If we ever got a hold of the hope of His calling, it would be so easy to bear up under the little things of this life, wouldn't it? That's what the Apostle's teaching. I'm trying to get you to understand it so that you will pray for this and I'll pray for it for you and you'll pray for it for me and together the eyes of our understanding will be enlightened and we will have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Him to know what is the hope of His calling and it will save us from this world. Number one was the hope of His calling. Number two, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. The Apostle Paul wanted them to know how much riches they have coming for them. Now, if you knew that you were a son of God and you knew it in a gripping, real, personal, intimate, passionate way, it changed your life. You would live a holy life. Number two, if you knew what riches were in heaven for you, do you know what? The little baubles of this world would mean nothing to you. Instead of sitting down with your checkbook and saying, wow, we're doing okay, you wouldn't even be caring because you have riches of glory in his inheritance that he's given to us in heaven. You'd be able to pray that, pray that prayer of Agur so easily. Lord, don't make me rich. Don't make me poor. Just give me food convenient for me because I know what's coming. Do you know that contentment is the greatest secret to life? Amen. The single word, godliness with contentment is great gain. To the degree you are not content, you are frustrated and unhappy. If you can reach contentment, you have reached nirvana. Forget the word. You have reached happiness because it's great success. If you are living a godly life and you are content with what God's given you, you are happy. You are successful. You've achieved as much as you can achieve in this world. And do you know what? Contentment is a choice. Contentment is not how much you have. Because if you had more, you'd still want more. Have you ever figured that one out? You know, you get something new. How long does a new car last at giving you the thrill that it gave you the first day you bought it? Until the first oil change? Until the first mechanical failure? Until the first chunk of rust you find? It usually doesn't take long. Or the first scratch that goes into it. I mean, things just don't last. And things don't give us lasting happiness. Contentment's a choice to be happy with what you've got. Contentment's to be happy with the wife you've got, with the husband you've got, with the children you've got, with the job you've got. That doesn't mean you can't ever look for another one, but you choose to be content with the one you've got. Because godliness with contentment leads a man to be successful. That man's never going to waste time at home being frustrated. He's not going to waste time in bed being frustrated. He's going to be talking to the Lord, living a happy, joyful life in front of his children and in his own soul every day of his life. And do you know how you get to that contentment? You have the Holy Spirit open the eyes of your understanding so that you know what the riches of glory in His inheritance are that are waiting for you. And all of a sudden you'll know that you're rich and you won't care what you've got here. If we ever got, if that ever got a hold of us, it would not matter what we had here. We would be content. Totally content. If we're not content, do you know what's happened? The eyes of our understanding are dull. We have closed them. And we need to open them and we need the Holy Spirit to help us open them. Do you know how that would change your life? For those of you that are already living this way, you don't have to nod your head in any direction because you know what I'm talking about is true. But you know what? I still say that you don't have all the fullness of God in you yet. You think that you think you can exhaust the Lord in this lifetime? Do you think you can tap all of his riches in this lifetime? So that you can say, I've got all, now I've got the fullness of God in me. He's fuller yet. Right. 
You know, just talking about financial terms, the Lord said, I can pour out a blessing that you can't receive. Right. If he can pour that out financially, what can he do spiritually? Amen. Well, I'll tell you what he can do. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Right. That is the context for that verse, the fullness of God in your life. That is the context. It's not, I prayed for a Chevy and got a Cadillac. It's that I prayed for the eyes of my understanding to be open to know the love of Christ, and I got more than that. I saw a full vision of the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory and the glory of the riches. doesn't matter. It's glorious riches of our inheritance in heaven. That's number two, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Third thing, he wants to pray for these Ephesian saints to see clearly. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? He wants, first of all, the hope of his calling. You're, the, you're a son of God and you have heaven waiting. Number two, there are riches unspeakable. There is glory unspeakable and heaven waiting for you. Number three, he wants you to understand the exceeding great power that God reached out and used with you. You personally. God used the creative power of the great God of heaven to change your life or you wouldn't have believed the gospel. This power here is the basis and the reason that you ever believe. What is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? If you believe the gospel, and if you love the things of the Lord Jesus Christ and you love His word, it's because God has used His exceeding great and mighty power in your life. Now we have another according to, don't we? He's going to explain the exceeding greatness of His power. Toward usward who believes that you'll know exactly what he's talking about. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. The third thing I want you Ephesian saints to know is that God has used his exceeding great power to get you to believe the gospel And that great power that he used to get you to believe the gospel was the same mighty power that he had to use to raise Jesus from three days and three nights dead in the tomb and then take him all the way into heaven, body, soul, and spirit. Now here's the comparison. Don't ever forget it. Paul says, I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power to you who believe according to the working of his mighty power in raising Jesus from the dead and taking him into heavenly places. So that when we come to chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, And you hath he quickened, which means to raise from the dead, verse 6, and has taken us into heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is the comparison. The power of God that raised the Lord Jesus Christ up and took Him through the interstellar spaces to the right hand of God is the same power that was exerted to raise us from death in trespasses and sins when we didn't care about God, we rebelled against His Word, and we wanted to live life for ourselves. It's the same power. Do you know what? If that, ever, if that power ever got a hold of you, that re, you realized God had done something that great for you, do you know what you would spend the rest of your life doing? Telling everyone else what great things God has done for my soul. Amen. Do you remember the Gadarene? Remember the Gadarene said, Lord, I want to go with you. Jesus was getting back on a boat. Do you know he came across that, that sea in a storm for one man? Right. 
And he healed that one man who's in his right mind now. And Jesus is getting back on the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. And the man begs him, Lord, let me go with you. And Jesus said, go home and tell thy friends what great things the Lord hath done for thee. Do you know what happened the next time Jesus came to those coasts? There was a great crowd to meet him. Amen. You would go home and tell what great things God hath done for your soul that you believe the Bible and that you love the Bible and that you trust and believe the God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you can look into your families and you know that you were picked out of your families like the Lord picked the Gadarene out of that area of that, of that country. What is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe? I want you to know what that word quickened means and don't ever forget it. The word quickened means to, to take you from death to life. It means to raise you from the dead. God exerted the same power to raise us from spiritual death as He did to raise Jesus Christ from physical death. He changed us. When you believe the things of the Bible, it's because God has made that great, drastic, resurrecting change in your life. And Paul wanted them to know what power had been exerted. And we're going to study that next Sunday from chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead. Jesus was dead. Three days and three nights in the tomb, God raised him from the dead. We were dead. Days, months, years, decades, God raised us from the dead. And quickened us together with Christ and raised us up together in heavenly places in Christ. We'll get to that next Sunday. Those are the three things he wants us to know. And I hope that all of you understand the exceeding greatness of that power. Was there exceeding greatness in the life of the man of the Gadarenes? What is your name? Can you imagine that confrontation with the Lord of glory and all the deep, the devils that were in that man? Our name is Legion because we are many. But in what position was the man when he said that? Worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was the stronger man. And that man had been in the palace of the strong man and had been kept there for a long time, crying and cutting himself in the cemetery No man could tame him. He was bound with chains and he would break them. He wore no clothes. He was a crazy man. He was insane. But the Lord Jesus Christ was there and said, Come out of him. And all of a sudden, the man was in his right mind. And then the man wanted to be with Jesus. Now, what in the world makes that kind of a change? I walked away from my father when I was 16 years old and said I don't have any need of the Bible where I'm going. I love the Bible now. The exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, even according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in our Lord Jesus Christ when He raised Him from the dead and took Him to His right hand, and brethren, we're going right behind Him. Did somebody read today that He's the first fruits of them that slept? Now where is that Lord Jesus Christ in heavenly places? I'm going to tell you, His throne is pretty high. Do you know it just doesn't say over principality? It says far above all. I love all the adjectives of the Bible. I'm going to tell you right now something. You know, when you go to, when you go to school, you take political science, you take sociology, you take geography, you take history, and you learn about so and so was king. So and so was king back then. Oh, they had someone to bring their bath water and someone to throw away their chamber pot in the morning. I'll tell you about a king. He's described right here. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes of understanding, you know that what I'm telling you is the truth. There is a throne set in heaven, and Jesus of Nazareth is sitting on it, and he is far above all. He isn't just over principality. He just isn't above principality. He just isn't above all principality. He's just not far above principality. He's far above all principality. Now, see, I can sit in the sunshine and look at all those adjectives, and I get goosebumps on the inside. And I say, I can't wait until you show yourself to this world that you're the blessed and only potentate. He is going to draw his sword one of these days, and no one has ever seen anything like the Lord Jesus Christ. Far above all principality. What is a principality? It is a civil ruler either in the angelic realm or the human realm. Sometimes in the Bible the word principality describes civil rulers and sometimes it means angelic rulers of either good angels or evil angels. The word principality is used for all of them. Power, the same way. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I could go on and on with many cross-references. Just trust me. The outline has all the cross-references. Far above all principality. Those are rulers. And power. Those are rulers. And might. And dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this world, but in that which is to come. These people were afraid. There were, there were men in the city of Ephesus that could control their destiny as far as this world was concerned. There was a Caesar in Rome that can control their destiny. They had heard about Satan. They had seen Satan alive and doing well in the city of Ephesus. But I want to tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ is far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named. I don't care about the Pope. It doesn't matter if he excommunicates you from the church. And many martyrs have taken comfort in this for 2,000 years. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns on high. And he's above every name. And I don't have to be afraid of any Pope. I don't have to be afraid of any priest. I don't have to be afraid of any parent that told me I wasn't worth anything. The Lord Jesus Christ is far above all of them. And you have been made accepted in the Beloved. Believe it. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming soon. You will remember that you were warned when you see Him. Do you know the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Isn't this chapter about the love of God that was set on us before the world began when He chose us in Christ? That we would be holy and without blame before Him in love? Nothing can separate us from that love, including principalities and powers, life or death or anything. Nothing can separate us from God's love. There is no one on earth that can ever love you that you cannot get separated from. All human love is changing and varying, but not the love of God. Not the love of God. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. And no devil in hell, and no angel in heaven, and no man on earth, no matter how high his title, his might, or dominion, or his throne, he can never separate you from the love of God that is in your Father through Jesus Christ the Lord. This is my King. This is where I rest my life and my eternity on the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. God has raised him from the dead, taken him through the spaces into heaven, put him at his own right hand, put him far above all principality and power, and that is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. When it said, Thou hast put all things under his feet, here it is. 
It's put all things under His feet. Some of the things we don't see yet under His feet, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, but they're there. Do you know what the Bible can tell us? He's abolished death, and He's going to abolish death. Do you know what that means? He's got the power to abolish death. He's just allowing us to experience it a little bit, so we'll appreciate eternal life. If He didn't let you taste of death a little bit in in these physical bodies, you wouldn't appreciate eternal life. He's already abolished it. How do I know? 2 Timothy 1.10 says, Who hath abolished eternal life and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When did he abolish it? When he tore the bars away of the tomb that had Pilate's seal on it and a Roman guard outside it. There was a, what kind of an earthquake? A little tiny earthquake? You quizzers from math, you tell me. What kind of an earthquake was it? A little tiny one. A great earthquake. What happened to those Roman guards? They were tough dudes. What happened to the Roman guard outside the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ? As dead men. They couldn't handle what was going on. Because he tore the bars away. Do you think my Savior's abolished death? He laughs at death. I am alive forevermore, he says in Revelation chapter 1. He raises his hand and swears by heaven and says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, I live forever. That's your Savior. But your eyes need to be opened for you to understand those things about Him. The hope of His calling, the glory of the riches of His inheritance that He's given you, the exceeding greatness of His power that He's already shown towards you, and what He's going to show towards you. But we got to finish with Paul's moved on because he got so excited. He was talking about the three things he wanted the Ephesians to know, but he got so excited about what he was writing about Jesus, he finishes up the chapter talking about Jesus. So he says in verse 22, And God hath put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be the head over all things. Isn't that wonderful? That God put all things under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and made Him to be head over all things? Now that's what I've been saying so far. Is that exciting? That is very exciting. But I've left off the best part, haven't I? To the church? You're kidding. It says to the church. God has put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ and made Him to be the head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ is in that exalted position for your benefit so that nothing in this universe can ever touch you to the church. He will not lose a single one of His elect. He will gather together in one all that are in heaven and that are in earth and no one is going to stop Him. No one is going to say, what doest thou? It's to the church. Every benefit that he has earned and has been given to him as a reward and honor in heaven, he can dispense to you. Every bit of protection that you ever need from any name that is named, might or dominion, principality or power, he can deliver you from them. You know, when you read a passage like this, can you imagine that maybe on a good day you could go to a stake and be burned in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because guess If you had memorized a couple of these verses, do you know what you could be quoting to yourself? As a principality in power declared the crime against you for believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as they lit the flames at your feet, and the flames began to consume your body, and you could quote that verse to yourself, you would know that you were about to meet the Lord of glory, who was far above all principalities and powers, and He would take care of you. And I would tell you right then at that time, around that post where you are staked, would be the chariots of God, with angels saying, Move over, make room for him, put a pad there, because we're about to go for a ride and it's faster than he's ever done in anything on earth. 
Because we would be in the presence of God. And the angels would be there to comfort us. But do you know how you could do it? Because Jesus Christ of where He is. That's how high He's gotten. And do you know what? He's our brother. And you're going to be right there beside Him. Do you know what the Bible says? We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I can't tell you any more than that. How can I tell you any more than that? A joint heir with Jesus Christ of God and of heaven. He's won it for us because He's our brother. He's going to declare we're His children, we're His brethren when we get to heaven. And He has that authority. Paul is moving. Every time Paul writes, he's always adding on a new little thing for us to learn. This authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has is for the church. It's to the church's benefit. He's there to protect the church. He's there to provide for the church. And He's there to make sure that every single one of us make it to heaven. Which is His body. Which is referring back to the church of verse 22. Which is His body. Jesus Christ is incomplete without us. And it's not because we're special. It's because He's a covenant and public figure in the plan of God, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Jesus Christ fills all in all because He's the omnipresent God. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four says, Do not I fill heaven and earth? Jesus Christ fills heaven and earth because He's the omnipresent God. He's everywhere at all times. So he fills all in all, but there's something more special in this 23rd verse. It says that we are his fullness. Jesus Christ is incomplete without us because Jesus Christ is a covenant head. Jesus Christ is a public figure. Jesus Christ is a surety. He had a a people that were assigned to him so that if he does not take care of his people, his whole purpose for existence as the Son of God is destroyed. He is a covenant head that was assigned a group of people in the book of life that are called the elect of God that He was to make accepted, and which He did by His death on the cross, but He will not lose a single one of them. And He is in a position of power and glory right now where He will not lose. And we are His fullness. If one elect child of God does not make it to heaven, Jesus Christ will be incomplete and will not have accomplished His public charge that he was given by God by covenant. But he's not going to lose one. He's far above all principality and power and all things are under his feet. And he's the head over all things to the salvation of the church. And we are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You say, that sounds like we are awful close to the Lord Jesus Christ. Closer than I can describe to you. Closer than your marriage is with your wife. It is a very intimate, organic, and vital relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will not lose a single one of us. And without one of us, He would be incomplete. But I want to tell you something. He is not incomplete and never will be. He's going to save every single one of us. But we are tied in union because God raised up a brother from among the people like one of us, but He was the perfect, spotless Son of God, and He has saved every one of us. We are His body. We are His church. We are tied together in one. We are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. If Ephesians 1 doesn't comfort you, I don't know how to comfort you. Can you tell the Lord that you love Him sometime? Can you ask the Lord to give the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Him, that you might get a little bit more out of Ephesians 1? I'll tell you something about Ephesians 1. You can read it, you can memorize it, you can pray about it. And you're going to get a little bit more every time you look at it till the day you die. That's the inexhaustible supply of the Holy Spirit and His precious Word. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on Him today. 
All you need is a little knowledge to believe on Jesus Christ. All you need is a little knowledge to be baptized in His name. Because when you are baptized in His name, you are buried in water like He was buried. You are raised up out of that water like He was raised up like we just read. And you are professing your faith in Him that He is coming again for you and that you will live with Him forever. And then after that, you can learn everything else the Bible teaches. And if it takes us the rest of our lives, what if a wonderful way to live together? This is the purpose of the church. If it takes us the rest of our lives to learn everything that's in here and for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see more of it, praise His great and glorious name. I hope He comes and shows it to us firsthand. But if we, if we have to learn it for the next 40 years, thank you, Lord, for showing us what you have today right. from Ephesians chapter 1. May Jesus Christ be praised.